0: You're listening to Fundraising Radio, a podcast about fundraising for early-stage startups. The major rule that we follow here is no bullshit on these podcasts. No music to relax you, no advertisements of our sponsors. We only talk about fundraising here and nothing else. So let's jump into the episode. And today's a guest speaker, we have Phil Nadel, founder and managing director at Forefront Venture Partners. And today we'll talk about safes most common uh, instrument that founders are using to raise funding for their startups but not everyone understands it and there are many details that are not very clear so today we'll talk about that how to use that instrument who actually should use it and what are some other options for fundraising so feel. let's kick it off by you giving us some background on yourself and on forefront venture partners
1: sure happy to um thanks for having me on the show uh so I've been uh, in in the venture uh, capital space investing uh, for many years now. Um, You know, I was a serial entrepreneur for most of my career, sold, started, and sold a bunch of companies. And uh, after doing that, uh, several friends and family members had asked me to advise them on their startups or invest in their startups, which I did. Uh, And uh, so that's what got me into venture uh, capital and angel investing. And then it, it grew into a full-time uh, occupation and a full-time uh, venture. And it's something I've been doing uh, now full-time for um, oh, probably about uh, 15 years. Uh, and about uh, seven or eight years ago, when AngelList introduced the syndicate feature, that's when uh, Forefront uh, Venture Partners became a syndicate and start sharing our deal flow and and the deals we invest in with our syndicate
0: investors mm-hmm got it that's that's pretty interesting so we'll touch on to syndicate maybe a little bit later on closer to the end of the episode and talk a little bit more about what Forefront Venture Partners invest in so uh, let's start with these safes. Uh, they're considered to be the standard tool for every single early fundraising. Uh, but um, how should founders come up with the valuation? That's the first question. I mean valuation cap because there is not actual valuation there, but there is a valuation cap. So how should founders come up with that?
1: Uh, first, I want to just sort of push back a little bit and say that you know not every company early stage company is raising money using a safe um, some will do an equity or price round but uh, also a lot of companies just use a standard plain vanilla convertible note agreement that's not a safe and then there are also alternatives to safe uh, which one is called a kiss Uh, So there are other alternatives that companies are raising on, but safe uh, safe notes are very Mm -hmm. popular, as you you indicated. Um, And so to answer your question, uh, first, I think it's really, really important to offer both a valuation cap and a discount. So uh, sometimes we see companies that will have a discount, but no cap or a cap and no discount or sometimes neither. And both uh, the only option in my mind that really makes sense uh, is offering both the valuation cap and the discount. Um, so the idea, the basic idea is that early stage investors should be rewarded for the risk that they're taking at this very early stage. Later stage investors have less risk and um, should should get different terms. Than the early stage investors so um, in in order to uh properly uh sort of uh, take that into account uh, the best thing to do is to have a valuation cap and a discount so when you raise an equity round a price round uh, depending on where the valuation of that round is the investors early on who invested in the safe will either be, have a discount off of the the valuation or they'll be capped at the valuation cap but more specifically on the valuation cap there's a lot of confusion out there in the market with early stage startups about where to set that valuation cap and what it means and a lot of times companies believe that the valuation cap should be the, the equivalent to the valuation that they're anticipating getting in their priced round. And in my mind, that is completely wrong-headed. I don't think that's the right approach. I think entrepreneurs founders need to be realistic about what their current value is and set the valuation cap at something close to what they believe the current fair valuation is. Now, as we all know, you know, valuation is subjective. It's in the in the eye of the uh, of the beholder, so to speak. Um, so that's a negotiable thing. But founders shouldn't be set on you know the the valuation cap being what the next round will be. It's got to reflect the reality today.
0: Make sense? Absolutely. Yes. And yeah. Speaking of depicting the reality of today. let's talk about the mistakes. Uh, what are, and also we'll discuss the, uh, you know, coming up with the discounts for the safes a bit later on. But first, let's talk about the mistakes that you see founders making while raising through safes. What do you think are the top, I don't know, three well, mistakes that you see? You know, I sort of alluded to it
1: before, but, you know, the, the first is is sort of, like not to, not to consider the the risk that the early stage investors are taking uh, to invest so early. And what I mean by that is specifically not offering both a cap and a discount. I think that's a mistake and I think it's unfair to the investors. So that's one level of mistake is sort of using the wrong structure of, of a safe note. And, and the other is, in my view, setting the valuation cap too high. I just think that there's a there's a propensity in the market for founders to do that, and I think they need to be realistic and set it at, you know, what roughly they believe that the true current uh, valuation will be. Um, so I think, like, those are mistakes. I also think, like, more generally, um, you know, companies... Sh- often fall into the trap of continuing to raise on an ongoing basis with safes or other convertible instruments. And I think it's smart uh, you know, to, to not defer too long, not to wait too long to do a priced round. Um, so it's fine to do one round of a safe, maybe even a second round, but I've seen companies do three, four, five rounds of convertible notes or safes before raising a price round. And then there there's a lot of overhang and a lot of conversion that occurs into the price round. That will, um, that will turn off some uh, investors who might otherwise participate in the price round. So I think you have to be careful with that.
0: Mm-hmm. So, question about the price round here: uh, Why is it a problem? So, for me personally, I don't really care if the round is priced or not. But how do you think that affects other investors in terms of, you know, why would an investor participate in a safe round if he or she believes it's still a good company? So, what's what's the downside well, here? If there's because if the company has raised a lot of money on a say
1: safe, on safes previously, and it all converts into the price round. That's going to push up the post money valuation of that round considerably and maybe make it unattractive. Now, to your point, if it's still attractive to you, then great, Um, then no problem. But uh, it's just it makes it more difficult to price that round and make and make it work for everyone.
0: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, let's go back actually a little bit to discussing the valuation caps and discounts, specifically discounts. So how important is a discount for investor? You mentioned that, you know, if you if the founder does not include uh, the valuation cap or discount, that is bad. But what happens if discount is not really standard? So I know that the standard discount at early rounds is like 20, 30 percent. But what if it is, let's say, 10 percent? How, how bad is that?
1: Well, 10%, in my experience, is not really competitive. 20% is sort of the norm. Um, and, tw- and 25 and 30, we see also. But 20% is kind of typical. Mm-hmm. And it's very important. It's very important to have that discount. Let's use an example um, and say that, that uh, you know, a company does a safe with, a let's say, a $10 million valuation cap. And the early stage investors come in, and the company uh, does okay. It's not doing great. It's doing okay, and they go out and they raise a price round that's with a valuation of ten million dollars. Okay, so the company has made progress. They get a valuation of ten million dollars, and those early stage investors had a valuation cap of ten million and no discount. They're going to be investing at the exact same terms as the later investors, which is inherently unfair because the early investors have taken more risk. But with a with a discount, in in the example I gave, if there were a twenty percent discount, the early investors on the safe would only be investing or be converting at an eight million dollar valuation, not the ten million. So it really uh, you're making sure that you're covering all scenarios and being fair to the early stage investors by having both the cap and the discount. Mm -hmm.
0: Got it. So let's talk a little bit more about, you know, going off the standard path of uh, raising through saves. And let's pretend that you see a founder who is raising a pre seed round at 2 million valuation cap and 30% discount. That's like slightly, That's heavily below the standard what what does it raise any red flags for you or is it like you know normal for you so basically in which cases should a founder actually drop their valuations and uh, increase their discounts you
1: know where you set the valuation cap and the discount it, it very subjective but it you know it depends on a number of factors how much progress have you made? Is it pre-revenue or post-revenue, for example? Do you have proprietary technology? Do you have like something like a patent or something else that's truly proprietary that will help you build a defensible moat? Um, how much business have you done? What's your growth rate been if, if you're doing re- you're generating revenue? So it's like what stage within that early stage framework, what stage are you? and then it it frankly comes down to a negotiation between the investor and and the company so i don't see it necessarily as a red flag if a company uh has a low uh valuation cap and a high discount sometimes founders just don't know what the market is and they'll price it and they'll, uh, they'll put the cap and a discount without really knowing what the market is and 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 you can't blame them they don't they're not in the market all the time um and so they'll price it there um sometimes they'll price it too high so it happens i mean it's best before you price around to try to get a sense of what similar companies at similar stages uh, have gotten their Mm -hmm. investment done at, Um, and that's the best thing to do if, if you can and sometimes if you know if you know early stage investors or you know a venture capital firm they'll give you that feedback at other times you can, you know, sort of read about it like online or in Crunchbase or whatever, but you can get that information to give you some guideline and, uh, but re- the rest of it is just based on your, the company's progress to date and, uh, you know, a- a- and then a- what, what they have that's proprietary and then in negotiation, that's, that's what it comes down to really.
0: Mm-hmm. That's right. So here, let's talk a little bit more about syndicates. So you mentioned, uh that, you know, f- forefront venture partners is a syndicate. So now let's talk about how syndicate model works. So let's start with the basic, what is a syndicate?
1: Sure, so it's a group of accredited investors, in, in my case, through the AngelList platform, who uh, ha- are interested in investing in early stage companies. And what we do for them is we share our deals that we're investing in so we do all the deal sourcing we find the deals we do a ton of due diligence we negotiate the the deal the, the the valuation we get the legal paperwork done and then we present the deal we share those deals with our syndicate investors they have no obligation to invest at all they uh can choose to invest or not And if they do invest, they invest with us on the same exact terms that we're investing in. And there are no fees that are charged up front by us or AngelList, but they do pay uh, what's called a carried interest. So if they make a profit on the on the investment, ultimately, like if the company is is sold or goes public, if they make a profit, then part of that. Profit is shared with uh, us and AngelList. Um, so, in short, it's a way for early-stage investors to get excellent, curated deal flow that's been uh, very that's been um, d- had a lot of due diligence done, and they have the option to opt in or opt out. And a lot of these folks can uh, invest as little as a few thousand dollars. Which they wouldn't be able to do on their own uh, with any of these companies. They wouldn't have access to the deals to begin with, but even if they did, they couldn't invest $5,000. The company wouldn't, wouldn't do that. Um, so this gives them access. And then I would say finally, there are lots of opportunities for our syndicate investors, our members to help our portfolio companies to provide that assistance. To the companies we invest in. And that's a big reason why a lot of them invest is because they enjoy helping entrepreneurs and founders grow their, their companies. And we, we offer a lot of uh, opportunities for that. So that's a little bit about sort of how the syndicate model works. I guess I would say also that, you know, it's important to note that all of the investors uh, go into one entity. Uh, so they all, their investments were all pooled uh, into one entity. A newly created entity that then is the investor in the company that we're funding.
0: Got it. So, for me, the model sounds very much similar to an angel invest. I mean, an angel group. So, what's in your eyes? What's the major difference between the an angel group and a syndicate?
1: Yeah, the, there are there are certainly a lot of similarities. Um, the I would say that the difference is that mostly with a syndication model like ours. Uh, We're doing a lot more of the uh, curation and due diligence and only sharing the deals that we're investing in. A lot of angel groups will share um, more deals and and leave some or all of the due diligence up to the members. Um, And also, like most angel groups have committees that will do due diligence themselves. Uh, We we don't operate that way. Syndicates are um, run by the syndicate lead. In our case, it's Forefront Venture Partners and we do all the work and we only make the best deals available. But all the all the due diligence is done already. It's presented uh, to our syndicate uh, members. So that I think that's the, the major difference. And sometimes I've seen angel groups where their investments go in individually. Uh, into the company and they have to invest a larger amount you know maybe it's a fifty thousand dollar minimum or, or something like that and with a syndicate, as I said earlier, you can invest much smaller amounts so I think that uh, sometimes is another uh
0: difference as well mm-hmm that's really clear difference and I like the differentiation there so um Let's talk about these startups now from the startup founder perspective and specifically how to understand if your companies actually can be fundable, basically. So every single investor says, you know, first of all, solve a real problem. And question is, how should founder understand that the problem is real? So what kind of testing should they go through? Is, uh, Should they try to collect some feedback through, I don't know, uh, forgot the word now.
1: Well, I mean, the best way to know if you're solving the real problem is if you've lived the problem, right? If a founder has actually experienced the problem themselves in their previous job or previous uh, company or whatever, or even in their personal life, then they lived the problem so they know that there's a a real problem out there they, they may not know the size of the market they may not know if other people or companies are experiencing that same problem but they know that there's a problem and they want to set out to solve it and they can't find let's say an existing solution in the market that addresses that problem adequately so they may Uh, As a next step, talk to some other individuals or companies who they think may be experiencing the same problem and talk to them about it and see if, in fact, they are or if they have a solution for it. So at first, it's about asking a lot of questions, talking to a lot of people in the market, asking questions, understanding the problems they face and how they address those problems. Um, what are they doing today to solve the problem, if anything? And if they have a solution, is it something that they would pay for? So after, you know, having maybe experienced the problem or observed the problem for themselves, they then start expanding the net a little bit and talking to other people who may have that same problem. And then what it comes down to is just doing a lot of, asking questions and listening, listening to customers, listening to potential customers, and finding out why they're buying, why they're not buying, and, and constantly changing and iter- iterating your product to um, best address the customers' needs. So it's very, very unusual to uh, uh, for your first version of the product, To perfectly nail the product market fit and be that perfect solution. Much more common is that the product changes and evolves over time in response to customer needs and feedback. And you can only get that feedback if you listen and observe very closely and ask good questions. And so that's the key thing is. Uh, The product is not going to start out perfect. Uh, A lot of people uh, go to market with an an MVP. And, you know, you get something in the market and then you learn and adjust and constantly do that and stay in touch with your market and your customers. and, And then your product will be much more valuable to them. And that's the way that you sort of make sure that you're constantly addressing the
0: problem in the market. Mm-hmm. All right, that's very valuable. And I'll make sure to mention this. revenue is still better than feedback. <laughs> uh, revenue is sort of feedback itself. So make sure to try to get people to pay you for what you're doing. That's that's just the best validation for any investor. Uh, so let's talk about your own thoughts on this process, specifically about the projections of the invest. I mean, projections of the founders made for investors. So you wrote an article called if financial projections are never accurate, why prepare them? Personally, love the uh, title, by the way. So oh, why you. do you think founders should actually take their time to make their projections? Because pretty much never they are true. So so w- why should they take time? That's that's a great question.
1: Yeah. yeah. And um, a lot of founders probably asked that question. That's why I wrote the article. But the answer is simple. From an investor Perspective, we know that the projections are not going to be accurate. But what I'm trying to understand is how the founders are thinking. Uh, I'm trying to get inside their heads a little bit to understand what assumptions they're making about the business and how it grows. Are those assumptions realistic? Uh, Can they extrapolate? the results date or the assumptions at scale. So I look for detailed financial projections that show how they come up with their their projection. So if you're projecting X amount of revenue next month or in or in let's say 12 months, what is that based on? Is that just a guess? Are you just saying well That's what I think we'll do. Or I project we'll grow 10% per month. That's to us not a good answer. That doesn't, then, then I would say, why do you, why do you project 10% a month or why did you project that individual number? How did you get to that? What I want to see is that their assumptions that lead to that revenue number, as an example, are realistic. Uh, So, for example, in, in a B2C model where the, you know, the company is selling directly to consumers, how are they marketing it? What response rates and conversion rates are they assuming? What price point and churn rate are they assuming? Are, is any of that based on their historical results or are they based on comparables in the market historical results? How are those numbers derived in a B2B situation? It's similar. You know, how many sales reps are you going to hire? How much is a lead going to cost you? What's your conversion rate? You know, how much are you charging? And what is that and what's your churn and what's the lifetime value? All of these things have to be rooted in some realistic assumptions that drive the business. Does the the founder making the projections understand what drives the business? It's, you know, it's sales, it's marketing. What is it that drives that business? And do they understand the the, the realistic numbers that go into that? So, again, what we're looking for in short in financial projections is to get inside the founder's heads and to understand the way that they are thinking about this company, the way that they are looking at what drives the company's growth and success, what metrics, KPIs do they need to hit in order to achieve those revenue and EBITDA numbers.
0: Does that make sense? Absolutely, that's actually a really good reason to make financial projections. Very much reminds me of you know drafting the business plan for a startup that's on its pre-seed stage. <laughs> Never really gets accomplished. Yeah helps you navigate the company. So on this, you know, very explanatory note, we're moving on to the last question of today's episode, which is a call to action. So Phil, what's the one thing you want the listener to do as soon as the episode is over?
1: Well, oh, uh, you know, it, it sort of depends what the what their plan is, but I we, we're always welcoming new investors into our syndicate, which they can find on AngelList uh, or go to our website. ForefrontVP.com. If they're a startup founder um, and they're post-revenue, I'd be happy to uh, look at their deck or hear their pitch. Uh, so, if they're post-revenue, we only invest in post-revenue companies. So post-revenue, they can contact us uh, either on our website or they can contact me on LinkedIn directly uh, and share their their deck. Um, and so, you know, get in touch. And let me know if you're interested in being uh, an investor or if you're looking for an investment and uh, and we'll address it appropriately. So LinkedIn or our website, ForefrontVP.com or directly on AngelList. Just search for Forefront Venture Partners.
0: Perfect. Great call to action. I'll make sure to leave all the links you just mentioned in the description of the episode. I'll also make sure to leave the link to your article. So if anyone's curious to to read more about, you know, uh, drafting the financial projections and how to do that, definitely take a look at that link. And yeah, my call to action is gonna be go to the description of the episode, take a look at the links, go through them, find something useful for yourself and try to generate some sales. And as usually, try to have a good day.